Even as nationalist consciousness was growing in the 1910s, the British decided to embark on what was arguably one of the most coercive phases of colonial rule. During the war, the First World War, they introduced the Defence of India Act 1915. In 1919, soon after the war ended, the British introduced the Anarchical and Revolutionary Crimes Act of 1919, popularly called the Rowlatt Acts. The law allowed authorities to arrest anyone without a warrant. It allowed the police to search any place. It allowed indefinite detention without trial. It provided for stricter control of the press. It denied the accused the right to know the accusers or even the evidence used against them. It stipulated that the convicted could no longer participate in any political, religious or educational activity. The black bills as they came to be known among indian nationalists sparked outrage and among the key sites of protest was the punjab it was here that protests intensified in the spring of 1919 and it was in amritsar that thousands gathered to protest against the arrest of nationalist leaders satyapal and saifuddin kichlu on april 13 in jallianwala bagh the british threw away the pretense of being liberal imperialists if ever there can be such a thing and engaged in a bloody and outrageous massacre colonel dyer and his troops surrounded the bagh closed all exits and began firing at the crowds for close to 10 minutes till ammunition was exhausted the jallianwala bagh massacre was a turning point for it convinced even those indians loyal to the empire that the british won their friends but the rowlatt act was just one of the coercive tools deployed by the british in india the massacre was just one instance of the explicit and implicit violence directed at indians coercion and force fear and terror was a central element of the empire to discuss the events of 1919 and located within the perspective of colonial coercion i'm delighted to welcome to this episode of our podcast the historian dr durba ghosh of cornell university dr ghosh is the author of gentlemanly terrorists political violence in the colonial state in india 1919 to 1947 On that note, welcome, Dr. Ghosh. Thank you for having me. Paint us a broader picture of how the British were ruling India in this period during the war through coercion. Oh, there's so many ways to answer that, but maybe the the bigger issue uh, for 1919. I'll just turn to the end of the, the First World War. The British, of course, emerge victorious at the end of the First World War. but their status in the world changes very dramatically right and uh the first world war uh india is involved in the first world war it's an important turning point in the sense that indians believe that they have been promised some kind of self-government on the condition that they participate 
uh, in the war. And so Britain's dependence on India is very important in the First World War. It's dependent on India for soldiers, for materials. I think that the other thing that I'll just say, maybe about the moment that you're talking about, about Jalil Malabang in April 1919, perhaps one of the most important features of this moment is, of course, the Paris peace conferences are going on at this very moment. So the post-war peace is being sketched out at the moment that this incredibly violent attack happens on unarmed civilians. One of the biggest features of Britain at the end of the, the First World War is that it has borrowed a great deal of money in order to win this war. So it owes quite a lot of money, mainly to US banks. And so its status in the world has changed. It's also at the Paris Peace Conference because it is holding itself up as a kind of defender of sovereignty, as a defender of justice, as a defender of fairness. And so I think Jelly and Wallabog puts them in a very compromised situation. And of course, the whole world hears about it, and they're all in Paris to discuss the post-war peace situation. I think another piece, and this really has to do with Indian nationalists, is that the Paris Peace Conference are framed by the articulation of the U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, which Indian nationalists follow with some interest. And in some sense, that's a very important part of the story in that Lajpat Rai spends the war in the United States meeting with various politicians to advocate for Indian independence. There's also the, the Gather movement right before the war made up of activists along the western coast of U.S. and Canada who were mobilized by these ideas about liberty. And so, you know, I think that this is a very big moment for Britain and India, but it's also a very big moment for Britain's relationship to the rest of the world, right? Because in, in Paris, it's articulating these very high ideals that are completely um, undermined by what happens in Jalil Malabag. So, you know, before we get to Paris, during yeah. the war, as you said, the British needed Indian men, they needed yes, Indian yeah. resources. Yeah. And in return, they dangled the promise of concessions. Yeah, uh, why was it that after the war, instead of embarking on reforms, the British, and they did that, and I'll come to the constitutional reforms, they also continued this coercive path and introduced these black bills? I mean, I think that's the question everybody wants to know the answer to, right? Because it's such a catastrophic mistake, right? I think maybe the way that I'll say it is that well, maybe I'll just back up a second. I mean, one, one of the things I'll just say about the Rollet Act is it's been in development for about a decade and a half before it's actually enacted. And so the Rollet Report comes out in 1918. The year before that, 1917, there's a report by an intelligence officer uh, of the government of India who's based in Bengal called Political Trouble in India, I think. And, and that report in 1917-1918 identifies what are this anarchical and revolutionary groups who threaten to turn violent against the British. I think that most everyone would agree that there's no active threat in 1919, in part because everybody's been jailed, right? But I think that some in the government believe that the Rollin Act is needed as a kind of preventive measure. And in fact, that's what they talk about it as a preventive measure. I think it's a mistake to think of it as an emergency legislation in the sense that it had been in the works for a number of years already, probably about 15 years. And in some sense, I think when you have that long a ramp onto a piece of legislation, it's very hard to give it up, right? 
Um, I think the British are also very good at categorizing different parts of the Indian population, right? And so repeatedly the response or the defense that the British make of the Rawlett Act is it's just meant for those people who are um, protesting in violent ways. It's just meant for these bad actors who are not participating in these constitutional reforms in a responsible way. Responsible is a big word. It's the word that the British settle on after a great deal of parliamentary debate in 1916 and 1917 about the constitutional reforms. So the constitutional reforms do not offer self-government, which is what the Indian nationalists want. It offers responsible government, right? And, and there the responsible government is meant for responsible Indians. And so that holds out the possibility that there are these irresponsible Indians, right, who need to be addressed by the Rowlett Act. So for the British, it's an idea that's that's pretty consistent for over a century that Indians need to be trained in responsible government, right? And so the Rowlett Act is meant to be preventive. I think the thing that I would say about the Rowlett Act is, of course, it's never enacted. And in part, it's not enacted because of Gandhi's protests, but certainly because of Jelly and Wallabog, right? That the violence of Jelly and Wallabog undercuts any authority that the British have to upholding any kind of fair norms. But the Rawlett Act is put into place in many different provinces, in many different pieces, right? And I can say a bit more about that. I think that the British see it as a defense of liberalism, of their liberalism, right? And I think in that sense, of course, the Rawlett Act is not ever lawful, right? I mean, we it's a very fundamental or basic principle in the law that, that you don't convict someone or you don't detain someone, you don't take their liberties away until they have committed a crime. The Rawlett Act only specifies that somebody is suspected of committing what's considered sedition, right? Uh, not treason, but sedition. So someone is being... Um, presumed to prepare for some kind of violent insurrection, right? And that before they commit that crime, they should be detained, right? So, you know, this was, let's step back a little bit and yeah. look at what's happening among the nationalists. Yeah. Uh, the Mahatma has returned to India in 1915. He has already led the Champara and Satyagraha successfully. Uh, there are revolutionary activities, you mentioned forces uh, that were operating, which flirted with the politics of violence. Uh, yeah. to achieve their ends. Lara Lajpatra is in US. How do the nationalists respond to the Rowlett Act? I mean, I think what's interesting about the response to the Rowlett Act is actually the nationalists of all stripes respond equally the same way, which is that it's unlawful, right? That the whole principle is unlawful, to, that to suspend habeas corpus is unlawful, right? They agree to the Defense of India Act because it's during wartime. But the Rawlett Act is enacted after the war is over. And so I think that from the most moderate nationalists like Sapru to the more radical, they all agree that there's no imminent threat, right? There's no war, there, that, that these are all patriots, right? These are all political activists. They're all political actors of different stripes and that they have a right to protest, right? They have a right to circulate materials that discuss different forms of government, right? They have a right to, you know, remember Hind Swaraj is banned, right? They have a right to read what they like, right? So I think that, that Indian nationalists across the spectrum are very much united against the Rawlett Act. And the other thing I'll just say is that, you know, the, the Rawlett Act has 
pieces of it appear in different forms, right? And I don't want to go through the long list of acts, the Indian Criminal Law Amendment Act, the Indian Press Act, the Seditious Meetings Act. So they're all, they're all pieces of the Rollin Act have already been tried out in different ways before. And in some ways, one of the things that the Indian nationalists, a lot of whom who have trained as barristers in the UK say, is in that other form, it was very targeted, right? And it was temporary. The Rollet Act is introduced with the idea that it's going to be permanent. And so that is a major part of the objection to the Rollet Act, right? So all those other acts are said, you know, the idea is we're in a crisis, we're going to have this for a few years. I mean, one of the things I'll just say, probably because we all have studied 9-11, right? And, and India too, Prevention of Terrorism Act, right? All of those had time limits, right? The USA Patriot Act had a time limit, right? And so that time limit is very important because the idea is this is a strain, this is an exceptional moment, and so we need this law, right? Indian nationalists, I mean, from Gandhi, and Gandhi also trains as a barrister, right? They're very, very clear, even though they disagree with each other on the means to how they're going to achieve independence, they're very clear that it is not lawful to detain people without charging them. So, you know, the nationalists were outraged. Yeah. What form did the protests take? And why did Punjab become a major site of protest? <laughs> well, the, I mean, um, there's a couple of things I think I would say. Uh, what forms did the protest take? I mean, uh, Gandhi's Hartal on April 6th, the week before Delhi and Malabagh, right, is, is the first nationwide mass kind of work stoppage, right? Um, week before Delhi and Malabagh, it seemed to be very, very, um, it, it seemed to be terrifying, I think, to the British in the sense that here's Gandhi, he'd organized these smaller campaigns, very localized campaigns over particular issues, mobilizing over what what to some seems like a very arcane law, right? And there's a sense, and if you read the Rollet Act, right, it's actually pretty arcane and that he's able to translate it for the masses to stop working for a day, I think is very powerful. I mean, I don't think there's another way to say that. Uh, why Punjab? I think each of the provinces, and obviously the book is more on Bengal than Punjab, but Punjab has a different has a particular sequence of laws that mark it as unique in this legal system. And so various pieces of legislation targeted toward the particular circumstances of the Punjab. And in some sense, the Punjab is seen to be um, potentially much more violent than other uh, provinces. One of the biggest reasons is that Indian soldiers uh, are recruited from the Punjab. And of course, many Indian soldiers who fight in the First World War and, and go to various parts of Europe. I think there's some very good work on France, but also Iraq, um, Mesopotamia. They witness how much higher the standard of living is in other places of the world. And the, that is a group that comes back, I wouldn't say radicalized, but certainly more aware of how they have been deprived in India. And so that's a group I think the British are concerned about, are those groups uh, that are providing a lot of the soldier class uh, in the army. I think the other thing is that, and certainly Michael O'Dwyer and Reginald Dyer are very concerned that Punjab is, it's potentially the conditions of the Sepoy mutiny, right? And that, that they have some particular fears 
about violence bring, breaking out in the Punjab because Punjab is seen to be more martial, right? Um, I think it, I think Bengal has a different ramp, if I can say. Yeah, the, tell us about the, Bengal. What was happening yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, I think in Bengal, the on-ramp is that there are all these ideas that are circulating through Bengal, right? And those ideas are about communism, right? There's uh, a number of bomb conspiracy cases that happened in Bengal in the 1910s. And the British can never secure convictions or not secure the convictions that they think they should be able to convict using the regular criminal law. So they have a they have various legislation put into place in Bengal. There's talk of using the criminal castes legislation in Bengal and in Punjab. But there's a very real understanding that, of course, they depend on educated elites from Punjab and from Bengal to run the government. So they can't use those criminal caste uh, legislation. And I think in Bengal, um, probably one of the things that's a challenge for the British, especially in terms of managing, I guess, protest, is that there's lots of Bengalis involved in political activism, right, who are related to people who are, who are siblings, maybe, let's say, with more radical uh, groups And so I think that there's a way that Bengal is genuinely confusing to the British in the sense that they feel that they have educated Bengalis in English and now these people are turning on them, right? Like there, there's a, and there's some very good language about, you know, we, we gave them the permanent settlement. They have land like they never did. How come they're not more grateful, right? And so if Bengal is the province that's supposed to have been educated into democracy, when they see these revolutionary conspiracies coming up, they're just surprised. And of course, one of the biggest conspirators is born in, in, in England, right? And, and this is Aurobindo Ghosh and his brother, right? So they're raised in Britain. And of course, they are also the inspiration for a number of these secret revolutionary cells. Um, so I think... You know, I think each of the provinces has its own kind of trajectory, right? We haven't said anything about um, about UP. I think UP also has a has a kind of trajectory that the British are watching. And I think in the UP, one of the things that really worries them is the large number of Muslims who are very concerned about the the um, the Ottoman Emperor being deposed right at the end of the war. And so Khilafat is very very important there, right? And it's very troubling that Gandhi and the Indian National Congress joined forces um, in the early 20s with the leaders of Khilafat to demand a restoration of the Ottoman Empire. So I think that, um, I think what the British see is in each province, they're facing a particular set of issues. I think they think of the Roladats as resolving some of that, right? I have not seen that they understood why so many Indian nationalists were outraged by it, right? I think that they went into it believing that if you were a moderate or if you were a liberal or if you were a lawyer, you would think this was a good idea, right? I mean, I think that, that Indian nationalists were united. Nobody defended it, right? Nobody thought it was a good idea. You know, thank you for illustrating that diversity of the political contexts in different provinces and what may have motivated the British. To return to Punjab, yeah. what happened on April 13th, 1918? Can you describe for our listeners how that brutality of Jallianwala Bagh actually took place? Yeah, I mean, 
I think that um, it's April 13th, right? It's it's a huge square. It's uh, several thousand people gathered that day. And the story, I think, is that there were five very narrow uh, exits and entrances. We know that the civilians were all unarmed, right? And they had gathered in the square at a time um, when orders had been given that large assembly was not permitted, right? The right to assemble, I think, is probably one of those modern rights that Indians were very keen to defend and defend early and often. Um, what we know is that the the British army actually gathered, and so that's a big distinction, that it was not the police, it was the army. Um, so this is something that the British are quite sensitive about, that, the, that to call out the police is different than calling out the army. And uh, Punjab, it turns out, is a very highly militarized place, and so the army is called out. General Reginald Dyer gives the orders uh, to shoot, there's reports that he gives orders to shoot where there are the largest numbers of people gathered. And of course, several hundred people died and over, I think over a thousand people are injured, right? A big part of the issue is that, that people can't leave because the, the entrances are closed off. I think you probably know it happens quite quickly. It happens in, in less than half an hour, right? Um, and I think that it's... Uh, it's a devastating moment, right? And it's devastating for some of the reasons that I've already said, which is that the British in this moment are upholding themselves as a kind of moral authority, right? Um, I think that the British are exposed as hypocrites when there's this international language about self-government and, and national sovereignty. And so um, I, I think it's fair to say it's, it's pretty awful. The days after are just as bad, right? And the days after there are reports of English women being attacked and um, and Dyer gives this order uh, about Crawling Lane. I don't know if you've heard about this, where a teacher who's been attacked, um, uh, there's a curfew put into place. And, you know, so there, there are various ways in which the local population is penalized, right? I think aside... The brutality is incredible, right? The imbalance and and who's armed and who's not is devastating, right? I think maybe more to the point is the idea that the people living in these localities have to suffer a kind of collective punishment for the days afterward, right? How did nationalists then respond to it? I mean, what was the contemporary response to the massacre back then? Well, I think it was immediate, right? I mean, I think that you know, Gandhi responds immediately. I think he's actually jailed soon after that, right? I think Motilal Nehru responds almost immediately. I mean, it happens just as the, it's about five months into the peace, right? Into the armistice. And so I think that there is a feeling that, and of course, it's also during the flu pandemic, right? So I think there's a feeling that the world has been through an incredible amount of violence uh, and to cap it with this seems really just devastating. You know, I think this is one of those events that becomes internationally known 
So what was the response in London and as you said in Paris? Terrible, terrible, <laughs> like terrible what happened. And and it was immediately Churchill issues. You know, this is a terrible blight on our country. You know, Churchill of all people. So, uh, and I think because the Paris Peace Conferences are going on with one of the main parties being Britain, right? Negotiating um, with the US and France and some of the other allied powers, right? So I think that it really does... um have a very major effect on the international and nationalist politics of the moment it's i think it's the thing that leads gandhi to say we should have independence in a year right it's uh it's the thing that changes the course of the rallad act the rallad act is never put into place and then it's quietly repealed 2 years later i i mean i think the one thing that i'll say about it is that 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 Reginald Dyer of course is a commission there's a report um Reginald Dyer is, is kind of blamed for it but then there's a lot of support for Dyer among conservative politicians in Britain in the end and he has his supporters and they raise funds for him to kind of live a nice life i mean he dies i think in the 50s right so i think that that's confusing and sad right i do think that there's a lot of emphasis put on Dyer and also the the lieutenant governor Dwyer and and again it's a devastating event but i think this sense that this was a population that had to be collectively punished because they had gathered was one that many british people had right that this was indiscriminate and of course um you know when prince philip visited in i think they went to visit in 1997 you know I think he said he made some kind of off-color comment about the number of people who died, right? So I think it's not a I don't think it was something that has historically the impact of it has not been felt evenly, I would say, across all histories. Uh but I think at the moment that it happened, I think the immediate response was quite clear and quite striking, which was this was a really terrible event. And I you know, I, I don't want to make it hundreds of people died, but I also think for the British it was it was really hard then to pretend that they were in favor of fairness right in fact so, that seems to be one of the big takeaways right because the british had operated in somewhat subtle ways they yeah. had co-opted rulers they had co-opted elites they had practiced yeah. deception they had created governing arrangements uh, with princely estates and here their coercive avatar was on display was that coercive avatar a really central part of the empire and is that why the british were able to sustain their rule in the first place we just saw it in 1919 in such stark terms that's such a good question i mean there's this book out by caroline elkins right about colonial violence and um you know i think she would say it was always violent and it was always coercive i think it exposed what was underneath right i i will say that we did, we try not to get into counterfactuals right we can barely explain what happened rather and so we try not to explain what didn't happen i think what's striking about um the events at jelly and wallabog was that um for a time at least they felt they had to pretend that that this was unprecedented right um it certainly is unprecedented in the speed right and the level of violence but of course there was there is a lot of slow violence in the british occupation of india and i i do think it's important to think about um 
how hard it is to mobilize against slow violence, right? That anti-colonial protest um, is very principled, it's very idealistic. Um, but the British defense was always, well, we gave you the railroads, and we, right? And so I think Jelly and Wallabog in some ways made the, made what nationalists were trying to do very stark, right? It made very clear what the stakes were. And in a way, it gave impetus to the non-cooperation Khilafat movement, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Like, I think if you were wobbly about the need to protest, it would be very hard to be wobbly after that, is what I would say. You know, on the non-cooperation movement, uh, because you mentioned the concerns that the British had vis-a-vis UP and the caliphate, yeah. I, I do want to ask you, in retrospect, do you think making restoration of the caliphate a central demand of the non-cooperation movement was a mistake? Oof, I have no idea. That's a, that, that's a good counterfactual. Um, you know, it's so hard to say, right? I mean, you know, I think it's a good question, but I think it's so hard to say in the sense that it's not clear to me how important the Ottoman emperor was to Muslims before he was deposed, Right. Um, I do think that, for instance, the practice of performing Hajj, which really booms in the later part of the 19th century, means that Muslims feel a sense of community uh, across the Indian Ocean, right? All the way, I mean, you know, we could start from Indonesia all the way to Morocco. And I think that Indians are very much a, a central part of that, right? Um, I think that what the loss of the Ottoman Emperor means is a very hard thing to gauge, but I think it certainly makes sense, right, that that the Ottoman Empire being broken up feels like a threat to Muslims in, in, in India. Was it a mistake? I, I, I don't know, but I certainly think it's a very powerful moment of unity, right? And it's a moment of unity that's built on the Lucknow Pact, right? The acceptance of separate electorates. Um, I think that when the Lucknow Pact is is agreed to, it's a very important moment in the conversations around the constitutional reforms, right? In the sense that it's Indians driving that part of the conversation. I think the alliance is more important than the actual issue. And I think in some ways, I mean, maybe the mistake is that, of course, they made a demand um, that didn't come through, right? And then, then the coalition kind of came apart, uh, which I think is very unfortunate, right? And I think that's when you see this kind of shift. The rising communalism. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Ghosh, for illustrating for us how uh, the coercive apparatus of the empire operated during the war, after the war, and how the black laws, as they came to be called, led to a nationalist upsurge, uh, with Jallianwala Bagh, of course, uh, being a manifestation of that coercion and the movement that subsequently uh, we saw was built in some ways uh, on that. This has been, I think, a fascinating journey for our listeners. You stay with us on this journey as we explore the road to Indian independence. Thank you, Dr. Ghosh, for joining us. Thank you for having me.
This episode of 1947 Road to Indian Independence was conceptualized and hosted by Prashant Shah. It was produced by Deepthi Ahuja. The sound design and editing is by Amrinder Singh. For more updates on this podcast, follow HD Smartcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.